If you have your Bible, open to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8. If you are a guest of ours this morning, I want you to know that at the end of the service today, we're going to have a time of reflection, a time of prayer, just to think about God's work in, in our lives. And so we're going to have that. Then we're going to stand up and we're going to sing a chorus from an old hymn that, that many of you will recognize. And then as soon as that hymn is finished, that chorus is finished, we'll be dismissed. But as a part of that dismissal, if we can pray for you, if there's something going on in your life and you need to talk about what God's doing in your life, at that time, we want you to be able to come forward. We want you to be able to come here, and we're going to be able to pray for you. So whatever that looks like, whatever's going on in your story, maybe today is the day that you trust in Jesus for salvation. We want to be able to pray for you about that. If you would, as you look at Mark chapter 8, we're going to read verses 27 through 30. So if you would, take your Bible, open to Mark chapter 8. Let me find that. And we are going to read verses 27 through 30. It says this, And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Before we look at those verses, and before we get into the sermon today, we're gonna stop, we're gonna pray for our friend, uh, Hannah. Um, Melton's family has been, been through so much and, and continue to go through that. And we're going to gather together right now to, to, pray, to pray for our friends, uh, to pray for God's grace in their lives, God's healing in, in her life, wisdom for the doctors. Uh, and so let's do that right now. Let's pray together. God, we pray for for your grace and mercy uh, in our friends' lives. God, we know that they're looking for answers. They, they don't know all that's going on right now. Um, and God, it's scary when we, when we don't know what's happening when, when situations like this are going on. God, I, I thank you for their example of faith. God, I think, thank you for their example of worship, how they continue to turn to you, how people in this church family love them so well. God, showing the love of Christ to one another. God, I pray for doctors who are trying to find answers. God, give them wisdom. Help them even today, God, to figure out more of what's going on and how to care for this family. And God, in moments like this where we feel just completely overwhelmed and don't know what to do, God, we turn to you. We turn to one another. We want to love you. We want to love others. And God, we pray for a miracle. God, we pray for healing. We pray for peace that passes all understanding. And God, even now as we study scripture together and think about what's at the core of our lives, God, show us more of, of what you want to do in our hearts and our lives. And, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Oh, dangerous there. Um, so a question uh, as we get started this morning, thinking about God's word. A question, what is at the core of your life? 
what is, that, what is at the core of your life? So coming up this Wednesday, we skipped over the slide earlier because with all that was going on down here, it, it just didn't seem like the right time to do it. But, but this Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, we're going to have a, a big end of summer Wednesday night party. Come 6 o'clock Wednesday night. Be a part of that. It's going to be a lot of fun. We're getting things ready for other things coming up this fall. But Wednesday night at 6 o'clock, one of the things we're going to do is have a lot of watermelon together. And so when we cut those watermelon open on Wednesday night, you cut it open and you hope that you're in line when it opens up and it's nice and red and juicy and you're not in line for watermelon when you cut into one of those things and it's white and dry and it's lacking all the good stuff inside. You look at something and those of you that are experts in the grocery store and you touch all the fruit before you buy it and you thump all the watermelons and, and check every pineapple, pineapple and cantaloupe, you're trying to figure out, okay, I see what I see on the outside, but what's going on in the core? What's at the core of this? As we look at God's word and we're getting into the core of Mark's gospel, we're at a situation where we're also able to say, what's at the core of my life? What drives my life? What defines my life? Mark chapter 8, verse 27, look how it begins there. It says here that Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. I know that seems like a small statement, it's just geography, but this is actually a huge turning point in the Gospel of Mark. What's happening here is at this point in Mark's Gospel and Jesus' ministry, he has taken his disciples as far north as they will go in the ministry. In your mind, think about the fact that he's taken them as far removed from religious power, from the people that they might know and be familiar with, he's taking them all the way north. The best way I know to illustrate this is if you've been to Six Flags Over Texas and you're a little bit of a roller coaster ride rider, and I've got to admit, my roller coaster days have officially, I think, come to an end. The last time I was there, I tried and realized, yeah, that's probably done uh, at, at this point. But there's a, there's a roller coaster, Mr. Freeze, that shoots you out really fast, and you do all these things, and then it pulls you up to the top and holds you for just a moment and then drops you again. That might be the best description of Mark's gospel, because Mark's gospel goes super fast. You go on this journey with Jesus, and then it pulls you way up to the north, in Mark chapter 8, verse 27, you're at the top of this roller coaster, and it's about to drop you down and take you on this journey through the rest of the gospel. Jesus has taken his disciples to this location that is far away from religious power. This area of the, of the, air, of the country, it is ruled by a man named Philip who became the governor over this area when he was 16. So just for a moment, Imagine you're going to an area where one of our friends over here who is 16 is in charge of, of the area. Like, they're the governor for the area. And on top of that, Philip ends up marrying Salome, who was the young lady who danced at Herod's birthday party when John the Baptist was beheaded. There's all these pieces coming together. So in other words, this is a pretty evil, out-of-the-way situation. Jesus takes his disciples there, and what does he ask them in the middle of 27? The middle of 27 on the way, on this journey, that's even what we're calling this sermon series, on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. So if you're a reader of Mark's gospel, or you're someone who's grown up in church, you know the answer to the question, who, who, who am I in this situation? You know that at the beginning of Mark's gospel, it's already been laid out who Jesus is. But they don't fully know. And Jesus has been doing miracles, 
and he's been telling parables, and he's making known his identity, but it's slow, and it's fuzzy. And so he wants to hear who other people think that he is. If you're ever trying to start religious conversations with coworkers, family members, people that you encounter, this is actually a really good question to use with people. Just get into a conversation where you have some mutual connection, you care for each other, and you can just ask them, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you understand Jesus to be? It's not a threatening question. It's a question of how do you understand the ministry of Jesus? Who do you say that Jesus is? And here you've got these people that are responding. Well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, others one of the prophets. Ir- irony of ironies that all of these would be characters that have come back from the dead. Those who have come, who have prophesied and now have come back. You ask that question to people today, who do you think that Jesus is? Who do you say Jesus is? A lot of people will count Jesus as a good teacher. They love the teachings of Jesus. Now let's be honest, at that time often they're, they're selecting certain teachings of Jesus from the New Testament they like and others that they don't like, but, but Jesus is a teacher. He's a key historical figure. Maybe they see Jesus as one of the great prophets So someone who's a part of uh, Baha'i faith or Islam or Judaism, they're going to acknowledge Jesus as a great teacher and a great prophet, but but not as Savior, not as the Son of God. A lot of people see Jesus as someone who does miracles, someone who brings good to the world. And so he's addressing poverty, and he's mainly addressing social concerns. Some people see Jesus as a political figure. His job is to help us get ahead politically. He provides political power, political strategy. There's all these different ideas here about who do people say that Jesus is. But look at the next verse. Verse 29. He asked them, but who do you say that I am? Now I realize, hear me out on this, I I realize that preachers are prone to overstate things, and and I'm guilty as charged. (laughs) Guilty of exaggerating, guilty of overstating, but let me just say directly to you. I can't imagine a more important question that every person in this room would ask themselves. This is the question to ask. If if you're, it's easy to get distracted. I know we had a lot going on this morning. You've got a lot of things going on in your life. If I could just point you to this question, every single person on the planet has to be able to answer this question for themselves. Who do you say Jesus is? At the core of your life, at the core of your being, how do you answer that question? This is the most, in quest- most important question that you'll deal with today. And if I could just go ahead and say it, this is the most important question you'll deal with in your life. Who do you say that Jesus is? How do you respond to his ministry and his teaching? What does Peter say here? He says, you are the Christ. And then Jesus strictly charged them to tell no one about him. This morning, as you look at the sermon, there are two points. There are two things that we have to see at the core of our life. The first point is the core confession. We desire that for every person, the core confession of their life is that they would be able to say, Jesus is the Christ. Now, if you've grown up around church, or you've been around the Bible, or you've gone to vacation Bible school through the years, it's easy to think that Christ is, is Jesus' last name, (laughs) because we hear people say Jesus Christ. And maybe where you work, people say Jesus Christ a lot, but they don't really mean it in the the religious idea. It just, it comes out as a a manner of speaking. Christ isn't technically Jesus' last name. The way it refers to here is Christ is a word for Messiah. 
Which again, I know is a churchy word, it's, a, it's an Old Testament sounding word. Trying to get to the core of that word, one word that I like to use with kids when we talk about this passage, when we talk about Christ and Messiah, the word rescuer is a really good word that makes sense to kids, and frankly it helps adults too, when we're trying to understand this idea of Christ and Messiah. In the Old Testament, you have the idea that God is going to anoint, or he's going to put his power, he's going to set apart one who's going to be the Christ, the one who will come to rescue the people of God, the one who will overcome evil, overcome death, who's going to bring the people of God back to God. The one who's come will be the Christ, will be the Messiah. When Jesus comes, what is so different is that people were imagining that the Messiah, the Christ, would be a military leader would be a political leader, would be someone who would gather the people and they would go against the Roman forces and drive out the Romans. Except when Jesus shows up at the Christ, he's going to drive out evil, but it's not the Roman Empire evil, it's the evil within our hearts. <laughs> it's the evil that every one of us face. It's the reality that every one of us has sinned and deserves death. And so Jesus comes as the Christ. Not one Christ, not one rescuer, he comes as the Christ. Last week, we talked about how the disciples, after Jesus fed 4,000 people, they took these seven baskets of bread and they put them in the boat and they went across the lake and they went to this village and Jesus confronted the Pharisees and then they got back into the boat and somehow they forgot the bread in this little village and how many loaves of bread were left when they got back into the boat? One. They were in the boat with one loaf of bread who do you think that loaf of bread was in that story? It was Jesus. Jesus had brought them to that point to see it wasn't the loaves of bread. It wasn't these thousands of loaves of bread that he had multiplied to be the blessing of God. He was the bread of life. They missed who was with them. He was the one loaf of bread left in the boat with them who could give life, who could rescue them, who could show them the path to eternity. He was the bread of life. When it comes to Jesus as the Christ, your confession this is the core confession. All other parts of our life revolve around this. This last week, one of the guys here at Emmaus sent me a text message, and he heard from a friend that he, you know you have those friends that you text once or twice a year, and you just kind of keep this once or twice a year contact or phone call or texting going? He heard from someone, and 20 years ago, he had had a conversation with this friend in which he told his friend, when it comes to Jesus, you can't straddle the fence on Christianity. Either you are following Jesus with your life or you're not. 20 years later, this last week, he hears from this friend who has trusted in Jesus for salvation. You never know the impact that you're making on someone's life when you're pointing them toward Jesus. It may take 20 years, it may take 40 years, it may take 60 years to see that, but you're pointing them to Jesus saying you can't straddle the fence. This is a confession that we make that we want every person on earth to make. A few years ago, when I was preaching the same passage out of the Gospel of Matthew, the service was over, and one of our young kids here at Emmaus walked up to me after the service, and he said, I want to do that. I was like, what's he talking about? He's like, I want to do that. And so I had no idea. He said, I want to make that confession. I want to say Jesus is the Christ that he is Lord. This morning, God may have brought you to this place because for the first time in your life, you need to truly make that confession the core of your life. Jesus, 
I believe that you are the rescuer. You are the only one who can rescue me from sin. You are the only one who can rescue me from death. You are the one who gives life. You are the bread of life. And God has brought you here today so that you would make that confession, that statement, that belief, you would make that the core of your life. And it's not something easy we say because Jesus knew that there would be confusion about this. What does it mean to say that Jesus is, is Christ? Well, look at the next verse. Why does Jesus say, don't tell anybody about this? Well, because the next verse, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. Notice in verse 31 that Jesus doesn't call himself the Christ here. He refers back to himself as the Son of Man. What he's doing is Jesus is picking up these ideas from the Old Testament in Daniel chapter seven. He's gonna to refer to himself as the son of man because if he calls himself the Christ, there's gonna be all kinds of confusion at this point about what that means. And so he refers to himself here as the son of man, as the one who will come in glory, who will bring God's power to the world. And he talks about what's gonna to happen to him. Well, he's going to suffer many things, be rejected, be killed, and after three days, rise again. He's describing what his ministry is going to look like from this point forward in the Gospel of Mark for the rest of his life. Verse 32. He said this plainly or boldly, meaning he doesn't use a parable at this point. There's no confusion. He's being straightforward with these guys. No miracles, no parables. He taught them plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. All right. <laughs> What's Peter doing here at this situation? This word for rebuke is the word for commanding or ordering. What Jesus has done to the wind and the waves, what Jesus has done to the demons, what Jesus has done to the forces of this world, he's commanded, he's rebuked them up to this point in the gospel, and now Peter is doing that to Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, those things aren't gonna happen to you. Like When the Messiah comes, he's not gonna suffer. He's not gonna be rejected. He's not going to be killed and, and rising again. That's not going to happen until the end of times. What are you doing, Jesus? And, and Peter begins to rebuke him about this. And verse 33, turning and seeing his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Ooh. Is Jesus overreacting a little bit here at this point, calling Peter Satan? No, and here, here's the reason. If you back up in your mind, thinking about the story of Jesus, or if you're not familiar with the Bible, and, and, and never, never feel embarrassed to ask questions if you're not familiar with the Bible, or somebody says something, ask, ask questions. But what happened earlier in the ministry of Jesus is Satan came to tempt Jesus when Jesus was in the wilderness. He hadn't eaten for 40 days. He was fasting. Satan came to tempt Jesus. One of those temptations was that Jesus would be able to have the kingdoms of this world without going to the cross. And that's exactly what Peter is trying to make happen here. He's telling Jesus, no, 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 we can have the kingdom. We can have the power. We can have the glory. But you don't need to go to the cross. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's the temptation of Satan. 
Satan would come along and say, here you can have the kingdoms without the cross. And Jesus says, no, there is no kingdom without the cross. I have to go to the cross. This is why we will have victory is because I will suffer and be rejected and die and give my life as a ransom for the world so that they can have life and be forgiven. And Peter, he wants the power. He wants the kingdom without the cross. And Jesus is clear about that. And so, in verse 34, calling the crowd to him with his disciples. So he wants you to know, if you're gonna be a part of my disciples, if you're part of this crowd and you're trying to figure this out, Jesus said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. We had the core confession earlier. The core confession of my life is, Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the Savior. You are my only hope. The core commitment of my life is if I'm going to say that, it means I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross, and follow Jesus every day of my life. One way we might say this is we believe that Jesus is both Savior and Lord. The confession of your life and the commitment to follow Jesus, those aren't two separate things. Those are two sides of the same coin. That I've given my life to Jesus. I'm making this confession. At Emmaus, we would say, I'm going to proclaim Jesus. I'm going to say, this is true. He is Savior. He is Messiah. And I'm going to display Jesus. I'm going to commit my life. I'm going to give myself fully to him. The confession, you are Christ, drives the commitment. I'm going to deny myself, take up my cross. I'm going to follow you. Because We don't just say the words, you are Christ, you are Lord, you are Savior. Anybody can say those words. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. It's one thing to say you are the Christ, like Peter said. It's another thing to realize it's going to involve going to the cross. We believe that Jesus is Savior, and we believe that he is Lord of our lives, and that's two sides of the same coin. That is where we find our life. That's where we find our hope. What does this mean here? Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. That phrase there, uh, the other night, Amanda and I were on our nightly walk around the the lake, let's be honest, it's a pond, and it's barely even a pond at this point in our neighborhood. There's so little water. Our pond is struggling in the neighborhood right now. But uh, we, we were going around, walking around the pond, walking around the lake in our neighborhood the other night, talking about this phrase, what does it mean to deny yourself? This phrase does not primarily mean self-discipline or this idea, well, I'm just not going to have chocolate this week. Now, that might be good. I'm not saying that's bad. Uh, or I'm going to deny myself these things. This phrase, I'm going to deny myself, means that my life, my identity, my goals, my aspirations, everything that I would want for my life, I'm handing control of that to Jesus. So I'm going to deny how I would want to live my life. I'm going to deny what I would want my identity, my goals, and my aspirations to be, and I'm going to say The best way to say this, if you need to write a phrase out to the side of this phrase to make sense of it, the phrase would be, not my will, but yours be done. What does it mean to deny yourself? It means, not my will, God, but yours be done. How many of us 
have had plans and expectations for our lives, like, God, this is how my life is going to go, and this is what it's going to look like, and here's what the future is going to be like, and how many times have our plans not gone the way we expected? Life has not developed the way that we thought it would, and we're able to say, I'm going to deny myself, and I'm going to trust that you're in control, God not me. I'm giving control of my life to you, not my will, but yours be done. And, and to take up our cross means that I'm going to be identified with the cross of Jesus. To follow Jesus is a way of suffering. It's a way of shame. It's a way of being rejected, and I am not embarrassed to be identified with the way of Jesus. And I'm going to follow him. I'm going to follow him with my life. Uh, I didn't mention at the beginning of the sermon, but we've had these surveys that people have been filling out today. I know many of you laugh at my survey every year. That's okay. Many of you fill out fake surveys every year. I get a chuckle out of those. Thank you for doing that. Then we throw them in the trash. But uh, we, we, Every year at Emmaus, we do these surveys. And the reason we're doing that is kind of twofold. One, it allows us to build up some data over time. There's several questions on there that we pull names away from. They're confidential questions. But they give us a little bit of an idea of how our church is doing in, in certain ways. Part of the reason we do it is it's a way for you to identify some things you're interested in or you want to be involved in. But another reason we do these surveys is because as you take the survey, I hope you begin to ask yourself the question, huh, I wonder if this year that might be something I could do to follow Jesus more. I wonder what it would look like this year for Jesus to be Lord of my finances. I wonder what it would look like this year for Jesus to be Lord of my schedule. I wonder what it would look this year for Jesus to guide me to share my faith with somebody else. And so I don't want you to fill out a survey like that and, and feel guilt and shame. I want you to ask the question, what does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like that Jesus is calling me to do in, in the days ahead? How do we know that we're following Jesus? Well, he asked some really, really hard questions in verses 35 to 37. Look at verse 35. He says, are not questions, he makes statements, I should say. Verse 35, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Teenagers, college students, young adults, let this verse be a gift for you, that your job in life is not to control everything, and even as those words come out of my mouth, let me just say, not college and young adults, maybe parents, <laughs> uh, maybe grandparents. Like our job in life is not to control other people. It's not to control circumstances. We, we can't save our lives. We can't hold our lives together. But when we give our lives to Jesus, that's when we truly find life. And it's so counterintuitive because we think if my life is going to count for anything, I've got to control things. I've got to make things happen. And yet to truly find life is when we release the grip a little bit and our hands go out in praise and trust to Jesus and say, I give my life to you. That's when you find life. People spend millions of dollars and travel all over the world every year to find themselves. What does the Bible say about finding yourself? It says, when I give up my life and I put my hands before Jesus and say, you are the Christ, I'm gonna deny myself, take up my cross and follow you, then we find life. That is what we are called to do. Verse 36 Famous verse. Many of you, I know this verse guides you in business. This guy, verse guides you in what you do in sports and school. Verse 37. What can a man, uh, verse 36, I'm sorry. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? 
what can a man give in return for his soul? The funeral question. Like, when I get to the end of my life, do I want people to see how much I've gained, how much I've accomplished, how much I've done? Or do I want people to see who I've lived for, who I've worshipped, what my life has been about at the core? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world? You can gain everything in business. You can gain everything with your kids in sports. You can gain everything in popularity. You can gain all these things, but if we lose our soul, what does it matter eternally? Verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Remember these two cores. Core confession, core commitment. Core confession, Jesus, you are the Christ, and I am not ashamed to say that. I am not ashamed for other people to know that. You are the Christ, and I will show people that through baptism. I will tell people that through my worship. I will identify with the church. You are Lord. I'm not afraid to show that with my life. The way I spend my time and money, it's gonna look different, but I'm not ashamed of you because I want people to know what is at the core of my life. There may be people here this morning, and you would say, I believe that, Owen. I believe Jesus is the Christ. He, he is the Savior. He's the only hope I have, and I want to live for him. But if you're honest, you've been ashamed to let other people know that. You've been ashamed to show that. Jesus says, don't hold on to your honor here, because that has eternal consequences. Live your life here so that you would proclaim and display Jesus to others. Not to show off, not to draw attention to yourself, but because you want other people to know how good he is. Two questions. No surprise. The final slide is, is no crazy reveal. We've been there all, all along. Today, what is your confession and what is your commitment? When you confess, who, who is Savior in your life? Every person on the planet faces two problems they can't overcome on their own, sin and death. Try as we might, we're broken, and our brokenness and sin leads to death, and you can do everything you want, and you can't overcome those on your own. But Jesus has dealt with both of those through the cross and the resurrection. And so, is that your confession? After we've seen this final course, would you come? Would you tell someone around you? Would you come to the front and talk to the pastor and say, I want to make that confession. I have never confessed publicly that Jesus is Savior and Lord, but today I believe that. Today I want to confess that. And if you've made that confession, I know in a room like this many of you have, you would raise your hand and say, I believe Jesus is the Christ. I believe that's true. Are you living a life that shows that to others? is your commitment to Jesus showing that you're denying yourself, you're not trying to gain the world, you're living so that others would know him, you're not ashamed of him with your life. What is your confession in life? What is your commitment in life? Would you bow your heads with me? Before we sing this last chorus, I know we come to church and we do, we do a lot of things. We pray, we have conversations. We'll be in this room for a long time after the service having conversations, encouraging one another. One of the things we don't always do well in church services is just 
times of silence and reflection. So I want to give you that opportunity for just, just a moment. What is God doing in your life this morning? What has God brought you here to consider and to think about? Think about the core of your life. Is Jesus the Christ? Is he the Savior? Is he the Lord of your life? And if that's true, have you made that commitment to show others what that looks like? If you know your commitment to Jesus has not been strong lately, use this time just just to confess that to him. Maybe think about the week you have coming up. I know that can be overwhelming sometimes, but you think about the week coming up. Job, school, games, clubs, hard conversations, whatever that might be. How can you live out a love for Jesus and a love for others? If you're here this morning and you have questions about faith, you want to talk more about, is Jesus really the Christ? Is he really the Savior? Is he the one way to be made right with God? If you have questions about that, I pray that God would give you the courage to reach out to me, to somebody else, to a friend this week and ask those things. Not even this week, do it this morning. Don't let another day go by without addressing some of these questions. And if you've been ashamed to let others know about that, put that to the side today. Jesus took on that shame on the cross and we will not be ashamed of him, Emmaus. God, I pray that this week that you would do a good work in our church family. God, we pray for spiritual power. We pray for relationships of encouragement and love. God, we pray for people who are just continuing day after day to live for you in small ways. God, help them to keep going. And Father, we say together this morning as a church that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Lord. And so we will deny ourselves We will take up our cross and we will follow him with everything that we have. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. 